Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves does not wither, and all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why don't we pray? Lord, thank you uh, for, thank you for your word and its ability to transform us when we yield to its author, which is you. Um, and Holy Spirit, we invite you tonight to illuminate our hearts and minds, to give us understanding and insight into who you are. We thank you that the scriptures are there to guide us again and again to the living word, which is you, Jesus. And so as we open up your word, we trust in its authority. We trust uh, in its revelation of the human condition. We trust in its revelation of you in your righteousness. We trust in its revelation of you in your judgment. We trust, Lord, that the scripture is given to us as a means by which we can commune with you. And so Lord, may we be learners and may that learning lead, Lord, not to knowledge for knowledge's sake, but to intimacy with you and witness to the world. We pray this in your name and all of God's people said, amen. Hey, um, thank you, that was lovely, Tate. Uh, I like that. I like opening up with a psalm. That's, that's, that's a good idea, Evan. Um, well, tonight we are going to be jumping right back in to uh, Genesis. We left off at uh, the end of chapter 6. So we are on Genesis chapter 7 uh, this evening, and we are going to move into the flood narrative. Now, uh, I um, am totally disinterested in the debates around uh, whether or not the flood was a local flood or a global flood. Uh, and as I've said before, the scripture and the narratives and um, the point, we often uh, lose ourselves in the weeds. Uh, as I was saying today, we can be obnoxiously left brain when it comes to um, interpreting scripture. And we can get so obsessed with the, um, uh, the, the mechanics of the text that we lose the thrust. I, I simply would say this, uh, the scripture does not treat the flood uh, like a parable or a poem. It, it treats it with absolute historical respect. Um, and I don't see any reason to believe other than what the scripture declares and I'm not really interested um, and I'm not blind to science. I actually like science a lot. I just think that it's a silly game that we play when we try to make the biblical text, which, is, which the point of this text is not a scientific document. The point of this text is to remind us again and again of the sinfulness of human existence and the redemptive purposes of a sovereign God who has the right to author the story as he sees fit. So at that, I kind of unapologetically jump into what I find is a very profound story. So don't ask me questions about the um, measurements of the ark because I'm just not that good at math, all right? So it looks, from all the drawings I've seen of it, it was a giant square that floated with a menagerie of animals on it. It couldn't have smelled well. I don't like to over imagine what that would have been like. Um, but I, what I do trust um, is, uh, and, and what is a powerful picture here, is um, a reversal of a creation that we just got done considering over the last few weeks that God said was good, was very good. And then we see a God who actually regrets creating 
because of the wickedness of humanity. And for those of us, I want to just prime this, this idea right out of the gate. For those of you that have been raised to believe that God um, is unmoved, that any emotional response from God is mere, uh, is mere anthropomorphism. It's uh, the, the writers of the text applying human uh, characteristics to a God who is not moved. And when they apply that idea of God is unchanging or immutable, uh, are, there is, uh, let me just say this very firmly, that is a theological overreach of what the text says. Uh, and is driven far more by, um, by Greek philosophy than it is by Scripture. Uh, the Jewish text does not reveal a God who is immune to evil. <laughs> uh, he feels a lot. Uh, in fact, uh, Heschel refers to it as the pathos of God. Uh, he is a God who cares deeply about His creation. He is angered by sin. Uh, he is merciful uh, towards sinners. Uh, and, he, and, and we also see in the text uh, again and again, God, for the most part, the scales tip toward mercy, but not always. And I think that it's one of those things like, like Lucy asking Mr. Beaver um, uh, if Aslan is safe. And she says, Mr. Beaver says, oh, honey, he's good, but he is not safe. Uh, we are dealing with the creator of the universe, the one that spoke in the universe, leapt into existence. I trust God's, I trust that God, every action that God, uh, uh, every intervention in human history by God uh, is always in accordance with his character and his purposes. Uh, and I trust in his goodness. Uh, so I'm not interested in those questions of eternal destination of those that perished in the flood. Uh, because the scripture does not tell us. Uh, what I do trust is that there are, there are consequences to sin, cause and effect that put into action things uh, that, that even when there's redemption, there is still judgment. And this is one of those severe judgments where there is actually a decreation and a recreation. And it's a profound story. So um, let's begin. Then the Lord said to Noah, Chapter 7, verse 1, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. The first thing I want to note here is God's observation of details. This is the God who sees. He sees Noah. He pays attention to the people of the earth, and he sees Noah as one who has been righteous before him. What does that mean when it says that Noah has been righteous? Well, I would argue again and again that righteousness, uh, when a person is de declared as righteous before God, uh, it, it does not mean that they are sinless, but I would argue that the righteousness is always defined by their faith or their absolute or implicit trust in the one who is truly righteous, God himself. Paul makes it abundantly clear that, that, the, that we are saved by faith and that picture is the same and he uses Abraham as the great prototype of Christian faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So when it says that Enoch walked with God, it's saying that Enoch is one who trusted God, who had relationship with God. He was intimate with God. David is called a friend of God or a man after God's own heart. Was David without sin? No, his life was marked by sin. And as I just stated, was there judgment for that sin? Yes, there was. Did it change the status of David before God? No, it did not. Uh, so there were consequences to the sin, uh, but what makes David a righteous man and what makes David one who enters into the hall of faith in Hebrews is not his sinless life, because his life was full of sin and mistakes, um, arrogance and pride and violence, uh, but it was his willingness to, to repent, to submit, and to trust in God and even in God's judgments. So, just in case you were like, Noah must have been pretty good. I think Noah was trusting 
in the living God. And we're not, I don't know about Noah's kids. What I do know is that there is a strong and powerful picture here um, that played out in my own life with my own father that the prayers of the righteous covers a lot. That we actually have um, sway, if you will. Um, uh, we have the invitation of the living God to be a part of that holy council. Um, and we can make requests of God. And he takes great pleasure in his children participating um, in his purposes and plans. It is always God's will that you pray that God seeks and saves that which is lost. So I don't know if Noah's kids were righteous. What I know is that Noah, I don't need that. Um, I know that Noah was considered righteous because of his trust in God and that created a covering for his family. Um, and Paul says that even of an unbelieving spouse. You might be, an um, uh, have a spouse that's an unbelieving spouse. And there, Paul says there is, there is a sanctification that actually happens in your household because of your presence there as a believer. Um, don't lose sight of that. Hold on to that. Um, so I just wanted to state that because I think it's a really beautiful point. So God sees Noah. He sees him and he says, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen your righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, or the male and, his, and the female, the pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Um, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Notice, trust, which is accounted as righteousness, does lead to obedience. <laughs> I think that that's, <laughs> there is not a conflict between salvation by faith um, and a salvation unto works. Uh, when we trust God, uh, we will do what he says. <laughs> when we don't, and this is why all sin ultimately comes down to a lack of faith. I don't trust you. I'm going to be my own God in this moment. God, Noah's righteousness is his implicit trust, which leads to his obedience to that which God demands. Uh, so once again, it's not sinless perfection, but it is an obedience, a desire to do what God requires and the trusting that God will fill in the gaps when, he's, when I'm incapable of doing what God desires. What a beautiful thing. The other thing I want to point out here because I think it's super important for this particular moment that we live in, in a world in which gender um, has become a hot topic uh, and in the, for the first time in human history, um, science is actually being ignored. And I want to just state this firmly, compassionately, uh, but also without apology. It is fascinating to me how many times it says God made the birds, the, the, the living animals, and humanity, male and female. And specifically when it gets to image bearers, the center of God's creation, it says, and God created Adam, which means humankind. Adam's very name means humanity. Um, and he says, and then he moves to the plural. He created, um, he created him in his image. In his image, he created them, male and female. Uh, this, this picture is, and this is something that, that we are so pressured in our culture right now to accept, I just filled out an insurance form. What is your gender, male, female, other is an option. Other is the option of, of a culture that believes that our emotions, our psychological self, is actually the definitive force that defines reality. So whatever my internal self says that I am, that is what society must respect that I am. And when science actually collapsed or submitted itself to the rise of the psychological self, it's not surprising 
um, that all hell is broken loose. Um, and we can't even have rational conversations about this anymore. What is terrifying to me uh, is, <laughs> it actually was really funny um, to me that, you know Richard Dawkins? You guys know who Richard Dawkins is? He wrote the book, um, uh, The God Delusion. And he is, he is an angry, angry little atheist. I mean, just a spiteful little man. Um, like, and he's brilliant, and he is ferocious, and he, he tries to make this claim that he's against all religion, but he really, really has it in for Christianity. I mean, because there's power in the name of Jesus. But poor Mr. Dawkins um, took a stand uh, against uh, the, the whole trans movement and said, this is not science, because he's a He's a geneticist. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a genetic scientist. The guy's a, a gene. He wrote one of the most famous books ever um, called The Selfish Gene uh, in, in, the, in the realm of evolution and genetics. Uh, and he says, are we insane right now that we're just going to like let people's feelings dictate truth? And he was blacklisted so fast and it was one of those like weirdly kind of happy moments like where I'm like, I pray for you, Richard. And now you just got thrown in with us. You just got tossed into the Christian handbasket of cultural hatred. And it's pretty amusing to me. Um, but it's fascinating that some of the world's leading scientists who have taken stands, some of the world's leading feminists who have said, are we really gonna allow men to define what it means to be a woman now? And they're like, you hater of humanity. Um, this is, we cannot be intimidated uh, into a lie. Uh, and it's not helping those that are believing um, lies about, we all believe lies about ourselves. We are all the products of a culture that is, that is as far from God as it can get. And even as Christians, we collapse our empathy when it is unchecked, leads to a blindness to truth. Empathy unchecked is one of the greatest dangers in the church today. I, I, I feel that 100%. You would say, no, empathy is one of the most important things needed in the church. Yes, empathy is unbelievably important, but it cannot, it cannot, um, it cannot lead um, without it itself being grounded in truth. And that's why we must be a people that are marked by word and spirit. I don't want cold orthodoxy that has no concern or care for people in their brokenness. Um, nor do I want empathy where I'm a bleeding heart because someone hurts their, their world, their, their hurt means that it must be true. That's not how it works. Um, what we are called to be is people like Jesus who looks at the world and we recognize our own fundamental brokenness, our own confusion, our own blindness to and the lies that we believe about ourselves. And because of that, we become like what Jesus said, the person who very carefully um, removes the sliver from the eye uh, because we, have, we know what it's like to have the log taken out of our own. Uh, what we cannot, we don't have to be bullies to hold the truth, um, and nor do, we need, uh, nor do we need to turn a blind eye to insanity to be gracious, is my point. The world wants truth right now. It needs it. It doesn't even know that it needs it, but it needs it. So. I always think it's fascinating that the scripture doesn't create third categories. And you're like, but what about, what about you know, those, the, the third categories that do exist? What is the percentage here? Anomalies exist, you know, they're Siamese twins. Are they two people or one people? There are two people that just happen to be conjoined. There's, we are, we have lived in a fallen world with fallen bodies and fallen minds. And that means that sickness and mutations and all sorts of things happen uh, and psychological glitches. We are the products of a sinful world. 
And this is why we shouldn't be surprised that people are confused about who they are. And it's not surprising either that all people ultimately want, and this is the thing that gives me such compassion for those that are confused about their own gender, is what people want is they just want to belong. They just want to be loved. They want to know that they matter. And for whatever reason, they don't think that as they are, that doesn't, that maybe that's not who I really am. And I think that, man, we all are people that wear masks. We all have identity crisis. Um, but, it's, but when the culture celebrates and pushes us toward the lie, that's where the, pro, where the rub comes um, and creates great problems for the church. And this will continue to be a watershed issue for the church, although I already see the logic of it is, is so turned upside down, it's already kind of collapsing on itself because we're just now starting to see the effects of, of a society that is basically said, we're gonna ignore what science has proven. <laughs> um, and, it, and the consequences will be great and will continue to be great. So every generation has its problem. This is one of our unique problems of the moment that we live in. And the outcome of a world that worships and serves the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Okay, there's my little diatribe right there for you. Um, I wanted to say it last week, but I just didn't have it in me. And I had it in me tonight. Um, okay, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. That word blot out is a really fascinating word. I'll just give you guys the strangest insight. And I don't know what this means, but I will tell you this. You never see names added to the book of life, only blotted out. I'm not giving you um, any explanation for that because I don't know. I just think it's interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but this blotting out, it's the removal, the er erasure. It's the same language that's used that what God says he will do. He, can't, he's, he makes a commitment, a covenant to never do this again to creation in this way. Um, what, is he, what does he blot out? This may be a severe judgment, but whatever game God has played, he has played fair and taken his own medicine for he has blotted out sin itself through taking the judgment into himself on the cross. And this is why if I allow this text to be informed by the cross, it's very helpful. <laughs> it's very helpful. All right. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old. I love that. He did everything he was commanded. 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape, uh, to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And by the way, that... that the waters come upon, uh, that in the Hebrew, uh, it literally means to engulf the earth. Uh, so it is a violent um, rising. And even this is a mysterious um, uh, aspect of that in verse 11. It says, it's the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month. On that, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. Um, you remember in the first days of creation, it says in verse 2, and I want you to, to notice this, is that, that it says that the Spirit of God, that the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God um, hovered over the dark waters, essentially. And then he says, let there be light. God says, the first time it, it, we have God speaking creation into existence let there be light and it said and he saw that the light was good it doesn't say darkness is good he says he saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness so the theme of of the waters as a um as a symbol of chaos uh, and God's ability to bring order to that chaos. The first thing he does is he brings light into the darkness. He separates the light, um, pulls the light away, and light and darkness becomes uh, not only the absence of light, 
but it will become symbolically the picture of, of sin, of the dominions of darkness, of hiding, of, of the outcome of sin, and even of the, of the, the very spiritual dominions of evil, um, which is darkness is, is something that um, does not have its ground of being in God himself, who is light. God is the father of lights, and in him is no darkness dwells at all. Um, so darkness uh, may be, uh, there may be things that are, it, there is strange passages like Isaiah 45 where it says, and I will give you treasures of darkness. And all that means is that I will give, I will bring about good out of what feels like evil. But it's not in any way saying that, that God is a God who works in the realm of darkness. Uh, and so this is a really important thing is that uh, one of the, I wish I would have um, dug into this a little more in the first few weeks, but I'm reading a really powerful book right now um, on the symbol or the meaning of creation um, that is, um, is a look at ancient cosmologies um, and understanding the, the, the depths of symbolism um, that, that plays out in these texts. When I use the word symbol, uh, I am not using it as something that is not, I'm not meaning it in the, as, as a, something that is not true. Um, what, I am, what I am saying is that it is something that has been infused with divine meaning that goes beyond what is actually seen. So when God separates the light from the darkness and he calls the light day and he calls the dark night, there is the literal creation of day and night, but there is also a picture of what will continue to play out through Scripture, which is that God is consistently separating the good from the bad, the light from the dark. Not only that, but in day, in, um, in day two, the only day that he, it doesn't say, he doesn't say that it was good, there's no, there's no it is good statement, is there is a separation of the waters um, and there is the canopy, the creation of sky, um, and then there is the, um, and then the waters beneath, which is, I believe, is what we're, is pointing to here, is the chaos is being allowed. It's, a, it's an undoing of God separating, dividing, creating boundaries. He's, he's removing his, his holding the boundaries in place. Um, and allowing the chaos to once again take over. Uh, even in uh, day three, there is the separation of the water from the dry land, and he called, he, he moves the waters to their, their significant places. Keep in mind, the ocean is not in heaven, because the ocean is always a picture of chaos in the scriptures. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture of scripture or chaos. Now, this book that I'm reading on meaning and symbolism, and this will be helpful in reading this story, um, is this. And I tried to hint, hint at it today, and I realized that I felt like a cotton-headed nitty-muggin who was maybe making sense a quarter of the time and left very discouraged after my sermon today. Um, hopefully, the Lord spoke to you in spite of me. Uh, so, th this, is, this is the picture. The material world in, its, in verse 2 of Genesis is a picture of um, meaningless matter and the spiritual world, uh, God is spirit, no man has ever seen God at any time, is, is um, incorporeal, or, uh, so it's the idea of immaterial, excuse me, immaterial meaning versus material meaninglessness. So light, the God who is spirit, speaks meaning into the meaningless matter. Um, and now he withdraws the meaning and chaos ruptures. I, I think this is a very profound picture. So symbol then is, is, the, is the meaningless matter that, is, that God has spoken meaning into. We are symbols. You and I are symbols of God himself as image bearers of God. There is 
divine significance that is breathed into our very existence. And though that image is marred, um, the whole goal of the Christian life is to be a, a witness, a signpost that points people to an unseen reality. When these Russian girls followed me around in Russia, the group of us in Russia on our mission trip, and I asked them, I'm like, why are you guys following us around? Their response to us was, there is so much light in you. And I think that this is a picture of their sensing the symbol. The divine meaning has been spoken into our lives and we have accepted it and others are drawn to that. I think that's a very profound reality. So the immaterial meaning, the God who is spirit, alone has the ability to speak meaning into the meaningless matter. Um, what, a, what, a profound, what a profound thing. And how interesting that huma humanity and its sin wants to continue to move toward shadows and lies and meaninglessness. Um, Non-existence, if you will, which is really the ultimate outcome of sin. Okay, so the heavens are open. The fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven are open. The, there seems to be like almost like a subterranean uh, just a rupture of the chaos taking over the earth. And it says, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded them and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days in, uh, on the earth. The waters increased and bore upon the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Um, just want to point out something. Uh, Ian and I did this really cool intensive with um, Tim Mackey on Exodus. And that word ark is the exact same Hebrew word that is used to describe what Moses is placed in. Um, and once again, God's redempt his refusal to let things fully disintegrate into non-being, if you will, and completely unravel his redemptive purposes. Um, there is a protection, a redeeming that's happening. And so there's these continued motifs that play out in scripture and it has almost the same language. The, um, even the, the little, the basket that Moses is placed in is covered with the same materials that's used to build the ark. So there, there's these motifs that play out and there are always these pictures pointing us back again and again to God has made a covenant with humanity. Um, and, and he has said, uh, he said to our first mother after the fall, your seed uh, will enter into conflict with the serpent and he will bite your he, he will bite his heel and he will crush his head um, and God is not a God who breaks his covenants um, humans break their covenant with God but God is faithful even when we are faithless uh, and I think there's also another picture what is the language that is consistently used of the Christian Jesus says this in uh, John 15 and I think that there's a powerful picture here is that that the only people that are protected are those that put themselves in the care of God and are shut up in his, in his covering. In this particular instance, it is the ark. But for us, what are we told? If anyone be in what? In Christ Jesus. Um, the old is past, the new has come. We become new, new creation, new humanity. Uh, even that. Jesus says, abide in me. That word in, that preposition in, is the most important word in the New Testament. It is the placement in God's providential covering. It is the protective covering of God. The same picture is found in the children of Israel when they put blood on the doorposts. The same thing. And where, where, where they were under that, in that house where the blood is on, God's judgment passes over. 
If we are in Christ, we have the ability now to be in communion. God has passed over our sin. We are protected by our, by our trust in Christ. It is Christ who covers us. This is why when the Father sees us, He sees us as perfected in the Son. It's the Son's perfection that's a covering. It's the ark that is God's protective covering over this family. They are safe because they have, they have put their faith in God's redemptive purposes. They have trusted Him or at least Noah has on behalf of his family. Um, and obviously his family went with him and probably helped him build it. So, and what, it, can you imagine how long that took? And what people must have been saying to him? Um, uh, has anyone watched the movie Noah by uh, Aronofsky? I know it, it's not his strongest film, but there's some cool things in it. He's a fascinating filmmaker even if the Nephilim are stone monsters. It's okay. <laughs> All right. And what does it go on to say? And the flood continued um, 40 days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth and the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The chaos, deconstruction, and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains and covered them 15 cubits deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. And all mankind, everything on dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven. They were blotted out from them. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah. I love this. First verse of chapter eight. But God remembered. He remembers Noah. He knows the God who cares. This is also the God who judges. And just in case we're like, man, that seems severe. Uh, all I can say is it must have been really bad. <laughs> it must have been. We, we get so focused in on the severity of God's judgment that we don't even take the time to consider what the severity of sin was like. What the rejection of Yahweh must have been like for him to say, the best that I can do is start over. Um, all I can say is that God is a God who feels deeply and he does not take sin lightly. Um, but it does not change the fact that Scripture again and again tells us that the scales tip toward mercy. And even here, His mercy in preserving humanity when if any of us had been God, we probably just would have started over. Um, and so I think that this is, I'm not, I'm, I think it's a silly question. Like, how could God? I'm like, He's God. Like, I have to trust that His, that his judgment is in accordance with His character. That's the tension that I hold in place. But I, I'm not going to sit around and try to come up with a reason uh, or, or try to talk around God's significant and severe and swift judgment upon every living thing here because <laughs> it's just there. And I don't think it's meant to make us feel comfortable. I'm pretty sure about that. So if you feel alarmed by the severity of the judgment, you should um, because God is sovereign and he is the author and he can tell the story how he wants to. Um, so let's consider this. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth. I just want you to notice this. This is, uh, first of all, his remembering no um, Noah is you're moving now toward covenant. So this is covenantal language. Um, but. This is the same language that we see in verse 2 of Genesis 1. Uh, the wind is the word for breath or spirit. Um, and the, he, he's passing over. Uh, he makes the wind pass over the earth and the water subsided. He once again, the, the God who is spirit, light, immaterial meaning, being spoken into material meaninglessness again. He is, bringing, he is bringing order 
to the creation that he has released the chaos. And this is the, the God who creates is also the God that can bring destruction on his creation. Um, and now he says, enough. And order is spoken once again um, into the chaos, the spirit passing over chaos. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. And the rain from the heavens were restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of, er of Ararat. And the water continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Um, and I think that this is interesting. Why would a raven go to and fro and not come back? Uh, well, it's because raven are carry-on creatures uh, that live on, live on dead things. And what would there have been a, a lot of for the ravens? That raven was a healthy bird. Uh, let's just say that. Uh, I can't imagine uh, the, the carcasses. Um, and I will say that that speaks to even the length of time they stay in the ark <laughs> after the waters abated. Um, so it went to and fro until the waters dried up in the earth. And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. I love that picture too. Obviously the dove becomes a symbol of the Holy Spirit in scripture. Um, uh, and there is, uh, the dove is one of the sacrificial animals. Uh, you, you never offered a raven. A raven is an unclean animal. A dove was considered a clean animal that was appropriate for sacrifice. That's also um, worth pointing out. Uh, but the dove found no place, so he takes her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Um, and what does that become a symbol of in our culture? Peace. The dove with the olive leaf is a, is a symbol of peace. Um, and this is where it has its origin. <laughs> yeah, what, a, what a beautiful symbol that is. And then we have this. In the 600, um, it says, on the dove came back to him, behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, that is, be fruitful. And be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by the families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth never will i ever again strike down every living creature as i have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease so basically as long as the earth exists i will not do this again and notice what it says though i will not do this again because the heart of man is always set on evil. Notice, he doesn't, he recognizes, and this shows that this is, we're dealing with a God of mercy here, is that I'm going to put into motion a different kind of intervention. 
It's not going to be decreation again. It's going to be new creation. Uh, and so this, uh, the heart of man, Jesus restates this very statement. The heart is wicked and evil above all things. And this is why we are in the dilemma that we are in in our, in our particular moment is because we have been taught to trust the heart when Scripture says that the heart is not to be trusted. It's why we need a what? New heart. <laughs> this is why Jesus says you must be born again. This is why Ezekiel says, I will remove your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Um, the promise of God to intervene into the wickedness of, of, of humanity is not going to be an intervention through destruction, but it is going to be an intervention through, through salvation. A salvation that will come through through the Son, through Jesus himself. I also want you to note here that this is the, um, the appropriate action here of Noah to build an altar. Um, altars are significant in Scripture, and the altar is, is just as it says God remembered Noah. Human beings have always set up altars as a means of remembering. Um, I go visit my dad's, um, uh, where my dad is buried in Kalama, um, where he is, uh, I shouldn't say buried, where he's placed in a wall on, on, uh, with his father. Um, it's, a, it's a place of remembrance. I don't believe that my dad's spirit is hovering there, um, but it's a place to remind me of who I've lost. It's a place to remind me um, uh, to remind me that it's important to remember because our memories are the very things that define who we are. But we also are people that are quick to forget to remember. <laughs> we, we forget to remember. Isn't that funny? Um, this is why we have places. God, has, God speaks meaning into meaningless matter. There's nothing sacred about this building, but it becomes sacred um, by us, the image bearers of God, meeting here and recognizing God's presence. But his presence, I don't believe in thin spaces um, in terms of uh, places where heaven and earth meet a little more intensely than other places. What I believe in is that there's places where God's people seem to live with a little more awareness than other places. And it creates the sense that this is somehow a sacred place. We make the place sacred by our, by our readiness to meet with the living Christ when we come here. That's what makes it sacred. It's we are showing others what it means to be aware of the God who is here and they didn't know it. And so I think that this is a powerful thing. The burnt offering, the altar, this becomes a, a place um, throughout Israel's worship uh, where they remember their sinfulness and their need for God's continual forgiveness and mercy to guide them. And, and the promise of Scripture is that His mercies are new every day. And here you see a powerful picture. Of the, um, God is not only a God of wrath, but He is a God of redemption and restoration. And Noah wants to honor God for that. The one who escaped the catastrophe could best express his gratitude in submission through sacrificial worship, acknowledging God as the sovereign of the universe. Um, and, I, and this language is anthropomorphic. God smells it as pleasing. The offering had a sweet aroma that pleased and, or stewed. In Leviticus 1, it signifies that God accepts the offering with pleasure. Um, that, it, that it is an acceptance of the offering. He accepts, in his acceptance of the offering, he is accepting the worshiper. Um, and that's what's happening here. And God blessed, and there it is again, recreation immediately followed up with blessing. He blesses Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. This is interesting. This is a shift. This has not been stated before 
in the relationship between man and the rest of the created order, specifically living things, animals now. And what is the promise of the new heaven? And there will be a day when what? The lion lays down with the lamb. But here, there is a fear of man in um, every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven and every creeping thing. I believe that what this statement is, is that this is God, he's just got done saying it. I'm not gonna curse man, but that doesn't change the fact that man's, I, I am willing to deal with the depravity of man's heart. I'm going to fulfill my redemptive purposes. But the depravity of man's heart means that man's attempt to subdue and rule over the earth as God commanded him in the garden is now going to come with a dominance that provoke, that creates fear, not harmony. Um, I, that's my personal interpretation of this text, is that there is something that is not right here. Um, and that is that, that man in a, in a fallen state will dominate in a way that does not bring harmony to creation, but actually brings fear and ultimately blood and destruction and death. Um, and I, I think this, I just think it's a fascinating, there's a, to me, there's a, there's a tone. I could be totally off on that. And I, I'm going to call Tim Mackey tomorrow because I'm really fascinated by this particular text because I think there's something here. My read on it is that the relationship between man and the rest of creation is messed up now. Um, and God is just acknowledging that. But it doesn't end there. Um, he, he moves it. Um, to, to, to warning and then to blessing. Um, every morning, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Two warnings here. Uh, they're not to eat, the, um, eat the, the blood in the flesh because there is a sanctity of life that's being ordered here. That life is sacred. Uh, and not only life, but he goes further and he says, now, remember, Noah now is in many ways a new Adam. Um, or the start again, all, hum all of the human race now will flow from him. Uh, and so the brother or fellow man uh, is language of the sanctity of neighbor. So life itself is sacred, and more than that, we are to treat every person as family that there is a sacredness to, uh, to the human family. And so it's, it's a sacredness of life and a sacredness of neighbor. Uh, but notice what he goes on to say, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. It's the blessing. There's the blessing. Warnings and blessing. Um, life is sacred. Don't take it for granted. The life is in the blood, which is very important. Why do we celebrate the spilling of the blood of Jesus Christ? Because the one who is life actually allowed, allowed himself to taste death for everyone. His blood, and this is why he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will no, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, you can see why that was such an offensive statement uh, to the Jewish people because there's a lot that scripture has to say about not drinking blood, <laughs> by the way. Um, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly. And then go, God said to Noah and to his sons with them, behold, I establish with you my covenant and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth, I establish my covenant. God is making a, he is, he is saying, this is my word. Notice again, he is speaking into existence an immovable reality. As many come out of the ark, 
it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So there's no promise that it won't be by a nuclear explosion, but we know for sure that we will not be destroyed by a flood. And that's at least good news. You can just mark that off your anxiety list. <laughs> I like it's very specific. Like, hey, I didn't say I wasn't going to destroy everything eventually. I just said I'm not going to do it this way again. No, There's, there is this, this powerful um, picture of God's redemptive purposes being put. And all, all, in all seriousness, God is putting forth a redemptive plan. Um, he is the life he is the one who is life and brings life. Um, and it, is, it says that in Scripture, it, he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Um, and I think that we need to remember that and hold tenaciously to that truth. And he says, and God said, this, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, the rainbow, um, uh, Although that has been commandeered, it doesn't mean it, uh, it wasn't first a sign <laughs> that God gave uh, to, uh, to his people and to the world that he would never again destroy the world by a flood. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Here is once again something that is infused with divine significance, a symbol of, it's more than just what we see. Um, there is something there is something profound about it. It is communicating the one who communicates and speaks the world into existence by, by his very word. And when I bring clouds over the earth and a bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And then, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began, we're just going to wrap up this chapter. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Once again, something that takes on significant symbol in scripture is the vineyard, the vine, um, wine. Um, and it is a symbol of mixture. It is a symbol of mixture. There is, this, <laughs> there is warnings wrapped up. Uh, around the vine and there is um, and there is blessing wrapped up around the vine um, and I think that that's important to note um, but right here we see the first uh, it doesn't start off with a good story uh, the vine whatever whatever beautiful imagery of drinking of the vine um, in the kingdom to come uh, this is one of those pictures that man just historically has not been very good at holding his liquor uh, and it says that that Noah um, what does it say? This, uh, I love this. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Uh, what, what is one of the things, what's, we're, we're coming back to a really powerful motif here. Uh, and that is uh, he drinks of the wine, which is in this picture, a symbol of, of death, really and becomes drunk, uh, he loses, loses consciousness and he is now uncovered. His nakedness is exposed. His sin is there for everyone to see. Where did we find this language before? Where, and our first parents, they were naked and what? Not ashamed, but what happened when they ate of the fruit? They became aware of, of their nakedness. They became self-conscious and became ashamed. And what did they do when they became ashamed? They hid. Um, this is interesting of all these themes kind of taking place. The, sh the, the shame here is uh, an unawareness of the exposure of the sin um, and the nakedness that should bring shame. Instead, um, he's passed out and exposed. And here, um, here's what happens. It says, in Ham, the father of Canaan, 
saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Um, what, what is the, the sin here? Now there has been speculation of is there more going on here than just um, him seeing his father's nakedness? I think that um, uh, I think that that's reading more into the text than the text gives us. So um, all I know is that what he did is he exposed his father's sin. Um, he 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 flaunted in it. He reveled in it. He made a mockery of his own father, uh, and. Uh, so I don't, some have tried to read into this that he had some sort of sexual relations with his father. I think it, the text just does not say that and the Hebrew doesn't support that um, from my vantage point. Um, uh, and this is what it says. He told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and they laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their fathers. What does love do? Love covers a multitude of sins. It covers. Um, I want to say something about that in closing. Just a second. Their faces were turned back where they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Um, and this is, this is why there's speculation. Because um, it seems a severe response to your, son, your, your boy just seeing you naked when you're the dummy who got drunk. Um, but I think that there is something about this that we're not, we're not called to ever, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Freud, uh, Freudenschaden, uh, which is the, um, the German word for reveling in someone else's, uh, someone else's mistakes. Uh, that, is, uh, that, is not a, that is not okay. Uh, we, don't, we don't celebrate someone else's failings. And when we know our own brokenness, we would never do that. Um, and I think when we take joy in other people, um, other people's lives falling apart, um, even if they brought it upon themselves, goes against the heart of God. Um, and so it says, when Noah awoke and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And this actually became the reality um, in Canaan's own history um, in Israel eventually taking the land of Canaan uh, and, uh, and he did become a servant and the, the, the Canaanites became, became slaves um, of the children of Israel. Um, and he says, also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let, let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. It's a long time. He's a very old man, and he died. Okay, I want to just say this in the, in the closing on, on um, Noah's nakedness, because I think this gives us incredible insight into how we deal with sin in the lives of others. And that is that there are really two options in Scripture. The one is you refuse to look upon it, and you cover it. <laughs> uh, but what is never allowed is the exposure, um, uh, the exposure that is the going around and the backbiting of someone within your family. Like, you know, uh, it, uh, I, it would be a, a horrible thing for me to come to you and expose um, some broken thing in my wife or my son or my daughter and share it with you at their expense. Um, because even if someone does something evil, when we actually choose to make someone pay for the evil that they have done, we run the risk of becoming the very thing that we have accused them of being. Um, I was just talking with Ryan about this, um, where there is the, there's been the refusal um, to forgive and move forward um, uh, of, a, of a gentleman toward another gentleman. Um, and this man has made it his mission um, to let everyone know what a horrible person this guy is. But what is so terrible about it and what is so heartbreaking 
is that this is all done, of course, in the world of Twitter from the safety of a home on the computer. And it's like, I am here to basically be the reminder of this man's sin. That is my existence. And what does he become? Nothing but the shadow of what God has called him to be because he's not being a conduit of love. He's not entering into the, the reconciliation. How many times should I forgive my brother, Jesus said? Should seven times? 70 times seven, which means as many times as it takes um, because we ourselves know what we've... Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, which tells us that there's much that we do that needs to be forgiven and that ignorance is an innocence, but it's still God's heart to forgive. And, and only a person that doesn't understand what they have been forgiven refuses forgiveness toward others. Um, and so how do we deal then? Are we supposed to just turn a blind eye? Well, I would say that Jesus, when he takes off his garments and gets on his knees and washes his disciples' feet, is how we approach the brokenness of others, which requires proximity. <laughs> it requires relational <laughs> relational investment um, and and never speak from this I hate it when Christians say I just want to be a person that speaks the truth in love usually what you mean by that is I want to make you recognize what how stupid you were um, and t Jesus was full of grace and truth and it was grace it's not two sides of the same coin Grace always comes before truth, always, always. You wouldn't know the truth unless God graciously intervened into your sinful life. You wouldn't know Jesus or see him unless he had first given you sight to respond. This is why every move toward God, God is always previous. And so I believe that the only two options is you, when someone uh, does something that's wrong is that A, we should be slow to judge another but we must also recognize that we are called to be like Jesus and to be willing to get on our knees and be the servant and to, because we love people, we want them to know the truth, but we love them and truth is flowing out of grace. It is not ever functioning um, as some sort of opposite to grace. That's my point. Uh, and I love here is that the refusal to look on their father's nakedness is not their denial of the sin, but it is their, but it is their, willingness, their willingness to be a covering for it. And I think that love covers a multitude of sins. Um, and I think that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And it is also when we show the sinner kindness, um, it is that we are told is like putting burning coals on their, on their head. Nothing hurts more than being accepted when you deserve judgment. Nothing is sharper um, and actually has the ability to bring real transformation. So I just wanted to say that.